Great, I'm just powering, all right. And we are also live on Facebook. Welcome everyone. It's good to have, it's good to have everyone here. And especially as we are learning today with Elijah of the Talmud, a, a rabbinic reconstruction. This class is meeting with Rabbi David Silver, who we had the pleasure of learning with very frequently, hopefully. Um, this is a three-part series, meeting Thursday afternoons at 1 p.m. Um, on the topic that the Talmud offers a fascinating picture of Elijah the prophet. Through an analysis of select stories from two Talmudim, we will try and understand the elements of the Talmudic interpretation. In addition, we will examine the ways in which the Talmud chooses to read the, the biblical texts. Sources, we do not have a formal source packet for this class. However, sources will be sh shared from Safari on screen um, and links will be posted in chat when we switch sources. So please feel free to follow along. I'm going to send out invitations to panelists. If you are just coming in, I recommend accepting the invitation. It's a great way to ask questions and participate in class better. Um, also feel free to and welcome to turn on your camera. All that I ask is that if you are not currently actively speaking, to please mute yourself. Otherwise we get some audio distortion. And Rabbi Silver, for those not familiar, is the Dean and founder of Drisha Institute well-published with his most recent book, um, available from Monkey Press. If you want to learn more with Rabbi Silver and other Bishop teachers, you can check out his back catalog on our Facebook page and YouTube page. And with that, good afternoon. Okay, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome, good to be with you, as always. All right, so the topic is Elio Hanavi, big topic. We meet three times and uh, specifically, uh, interesting is the way that the Talmudim, that is the Bavli and the Rushalmi, are sort of reimagining Eliyahu. I focused on the Talmudim, and that is to the exclusion of something else, which is quite interesting, namely how, for example, Jewish folklore sees Eliyahu. Uh, I don't think the way the Talmudim see Eliyahu and the way Eliyahu is appearing in folklore are necessarily identical. I think they're quite different, or at least there are some differences between them and our focus will be on the Talmudim. Um, Elio appears, of course, he's a uh, really a magical figure. He, he's well known for coming to the Seder. Uh, we imagine him at the Seder, we imagine him at circumcisions, and especially we imagine him as one of the central figures at the end of the Shabbat, uh, Malka, we sing songs about Elio Hanavi, Elio Hanavi, because Elio Hanavi is the one, as we'll see, who it sort of uh, in, uh, welcomes the end of days, the Messiah. <laughs> and according to the Talmud, he's not going to come on Shabbos. He doesn't come on Shabbos or on Friday either. So the first time really he can come after the break of Friday and Shabbat would be Saturday night after Shabbat. And that's one of the reasons that we sing his praises and hope for Elio and for better times. So he appears at the Motzei Shabbat. There are many different mirot that were composed uh, about Elio in any event, but our focus will not be all of that, although it's quite interesting in its own right. That deserves separate attention. But our focus will be on the Talmud's understanding of Elio. Now, before we get to the Talmud's understanding of Elio, let me just, because we, I taught a brief course on Elio prior to this, that focus on the on, on the Bible. We hope we didn't exhaust it, but let me just make the following observation. Elio appears in four places, in, the, in three places in the Bible. Primarily, he appears in the book of Moachim, the book of Kings and first Kings. And we meet him in chapter 17 of, of Moachim Aleph. And he's present in chapter 17, 18 and 19 as a central character. Uh, of course, we'll have to touch base on that because the uh, you know, the Talmud is playing with the with these texts. Um, the In chapter 20, we don't see Elio at all. Actually, a different prophet is mentioned in 20. But in chapter 21, he figures very prominently. That's the story of the God, the, the vineyard of Novot. Uh, then again, in chapter, 20, in chapter 22, which is the last chapter of Ruachimah, he doesn't appear. 
but he does appear again in the first two chapters of Second Kings, and in chapter two, he ascends to heaven. So that's what we have here we are. We have him in uh, chapter 17, 18, 19, and 21 of First Kings, one and two of Second Kings, he, for a grand total of six chapters. Then we have uh, Elio mentioned, here he's called Elia, in the last chapter of the book called Malachi. Malachi is the last of the Treasar, and as it were, understood rabbinically to be the last book of prophecy. At the very end of that, it speaks of Elio Hanavi. We'll come back to that. In the when I taught the previous class, I didn't get into Malachi, which is a very interesting chapter. And there already you see a different take on Elio, which is very interesting. That's where Elio appears. There's one other reference in the Bible to Elio, which is a strange one, and that is in the book of Divrei Hayamim, in Second Chronicles. It says that King Yehoram received a letter from Elio, a Michtav me Elio. It was a book written by Rabbi Dessler, a Musa book uh, called Michtav Me Elio, a letter from Elijah. Uh, the problem that with the letter from Elijah to Yoram is that Yoram is found in the book of Kings uh, seven years after Elijah has ascended to heaven. So the question is, how did they get the letter seven years? True, the postal service can be slow, that is true. Uh, but seven years is a long time even for them. In any event, that's not our discussion, but that is a well-known problem, the Michtav Mi Elio. That's where Elio appears in the, in the Bible. Elio appears in the Talmud in many, many places, many places, and we're not going to get to all of them, obviously, but I did want to get to, we'll start with, a, there's a selection of texts, we'll start with one from the Masechet Ketuvot very shortly, but before we get to Masechet Ketuvot, I just want to repeat one point that I emphasized when we studied the biblical text of Eliyahu. So for those who were there, I'll just review it, but for those who were not, this is a very important point in my opinion. And that is that when we first meet Eliyahu Hanavi in chapter 17, so it, he, there was no introduction to him. In chapter 17, the end of chapter 16, we're told that King Ahab is king of Israel. He's married to Jezebel. He's very wicked. And Jezebel introduces all kinds of idolatry into the land, and Ahab goes along with it. So it was at the end of chapter 16, we're told he's a terrible king, worst ever. And in the beginning of chapter 17, with no introduction to this fellow, says Elio the Tishbite stands up and says, there will be no rain or dew until I say so. There's no introduction to who this fellow is. He's a gift from Gilad, the Tishbite from Gilad, Ilyama Giladi, Toshave Gilad. But there's also, very surprisingly, no communication from God. It's not that God said to Elio, you know, because the people are so sinful, I'm going to withhold the rain, which is what it says in the Torah. Let's not forget in the second paragraph of the Shema that if you don't observe the mitzvot, it's quite explicit. So Elio knows his Chumash, but without consulting with God, he, um, he declares, remarkably, no rain. And then he says, there will no, be no rain until I tell you. It's very unclear whether God even instructed him in the first place. But in point of fact, that is what happens. There is no rain, there's a drought. And then God instructs Elio, because there's no rain, to go off to a Wadi, Nachal Kriyat, the ravens will feed you day and night. So Elios goes out to the Wadi in chapter 17 of 1 Kings, and the ravens are feeding him from the brook, but then there's no rain. So after a while, he, um, he, has, no, he, has, no, he has no food. So God instructs him in chapter 17 to go to Tsarfat, someplace in northern Israel or Lebanon, and there's a woman, I have commanded the woman to feed you. This is the beginning of the Elio story. I'm just going over this because it will set the tone for what we're doing. So this is chapter 17 of, of, of 1 Kings. So Elio goes to this place and he sees this woman. She's a widow. And he says to her, uh, let's find this verse in chapter 17. Uh, he says to her, 
could you give me, uh, please, a little water to drink? That's in chapter 17, verse number 10. He sees this woman gathering water. He says, give me a little water, please. This is the woman that God had said, I've commanded her to feed you, right? So she says, she gives him some water. And then he says to her, by the way, while you're at it, could you give me a little lechem, a little food to eat? Maybe it's bread or food to eat. Give me that too. She's commanded to feed him. So the uh, woman says to him, listen, says, you have to understand something. We have nothing but a handful of uh, a flour in the jar and a little oil. I'm gathering a couple of sticks. I can go uh, prepare it for me and my son. We'll eat it and then we'll die because we'll, we'll die of starvation. This is the last little morsel that we have. So Elio says to her, don't be afraid. I'll tell you what, you make the food, but just give me a little bit in the beginning. And then there's a miracle that this jug of oil and the flour are never fully consumed. So Elio is able to survive and, and then she survives as well uh, based on the miracle that the Tadakemach, the, the, the jug, the flour, the cruise of flour, the cruise of oil, Will never be will never be uh, completely consumed. Right. Then what happens in the chapter in chapter seventeen is that a, a while afterwards her son is, gets very sick and he's and, he, and basically he's, he, and basically the, the son dies. She has one son and he dies. And here we come to the critical point that I wanted to uh, just go over as an introduction to our topic, and that is. Well, there'll be two introductions, but two brief introductions. And the first one is, so she says to him, when her son dies, there's no breath left in him. And in verse number 16, verse 18, I'm sorry, she, in verse 18, she says, Maliv Allah Oh man of God, what is there between us? Did you come to recall my sin and cause the death of my son? So I just wanted to begin by reflecting on that verse. What does she mean by that? I mean, after all, he came to the house, he performs this miracle. They're only alive because of his miracle. So now when the son dies, she says, means what is there between us? Those are antagonistic words. Who needs you? Who has you come here? Did you come here to recall my sin and cause the death of my son? What is what is she saying over here? It's the question. What, what is the accusation? And what strikes me anyway, what I suggested, is what, what she's saying is that you're the kind of person who always looks for what's wrong. You are somebody who finds, who sees people's failings and weaknesses and shortcomings, and you are focused on that and you channel all of your spiritual en uh, uh, energy to bring down God's wrath upon such people. Like a big flashlight that shines on people and sees all of their failings. And that's the accusation. And in point of fact, that's how the chapter begins. And we all stands up and says, no rain. So he's the one who's determined, basically. He's pointing out the people's failings, and they, they are failings. But he's the one who points them out. And in point of fact, God goes along with it. And there is no rain and people are dying because the, fa the famine affects everyone. So that's the accusation. And in response to the accusation of this woman, he takes the child, he goes up to his attic, he lies him on the bed, uh, and he cries out to God. He prays to God. Here we have a prayer to God. First time in the chapter. Oh God, even the widow with whom I live, you will, you will harm. You will harm even this widow, even this person who feeds me and cares for me and takes care of me. And then he breathes upon the kind of a artificial respiration over here. And he breathes life back into the child. God hears a, a, a cry. And the child is revived. The child is brought back to life. And we all picks up this child at the end of chapter 17 and says to the woman, look, look, he says, your son is alive. And the woman says to Eliyahu, now I know 
that you are a man of God. And the word of your of the God is emet, is true. Here they translate the word is truly in your mouth, but literally it means that in your mouth there is truth. And this is a very interesting way to an important way to begin our conversation because what does it mean now I know you're the man of God? She called him the man of God earlier. She says to him, she calls him Isha Elohim. She knows he's a man of God. So what does it mean? You're, now I know you're a man of God. She knew it earlier. But of course, the point is, now I know you are a man of God who speaks emet. The point of the emet, truth over here, is truth means, who's, I would say truth is actually reality. Now I know you're truly a prophet. Because it's not just somebody who calls down God's wrath and punishment upon the people. Because that's not true. In other words, everybody has failings. But it's not true to the human condition. The truth, right, is when you deal with people as they are. You try to move them forward, of course. But you have to take into account who we are. Now I know, since you've prayed for this innocent child, and you prayed for me, and you turned to God, and you took our, you know, our, our, you, 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 took, you prayed for us, you stood in that place, now I know you are a truly an Ish Elohim Emet. That, that's the truth. Interesting, by the way, is that according to the Medrash, who was this child that Elio revives from the Medrash's mm-hmm. standpoint? Yonah. It's Yonah, of course. And what is Yonah's name? Amitai. Yonah ben Amitai, Jonah the son of truth. And of course, the very end of the book of Jonah is based on Elio. Not a topic now, but Jonah is based on Elio. The same thing. He wants God to deliver punishment to, to the wicked. That's what Jonah wants. Anything short of that for Jonah is not Emmet, right? Turns to complaints at the end. What kind of God are you? You're a God of kindness, but not a God of truth. He leaves out Emmet, right? Rachum v'chanum, but there's no Emmet here. So the point is, then God responds to Jonah. And what God responds to Jonah is not clear. But one way to read it is, I am a God of truth, but you don't understand Emmet. Emmet doesn't mean just, just punishment. But for sin, emet means dealing with people as they actually are. So yes, people have failings, of course, and they have to be called on the failings, but it's a much bigger picture than you imagine. So this is, my point is that in this very first chapter of Eliyahu, before you get to the Talmud, and the Talmud's reconstruction of Eliyahu, there is a reconstruction within the biblical text of Eliyahu. There's the person who tells Eliyahu off and is really teaching him what it means to be a prophet. And it's this mysterious woman. Turns out, of course, in the story, it's funny that he was sent to so-called, go to this woman in Sarfat, she's going to feed you. But of course, in the story, it's exactly the opposite, isn't it? Yes, he does feed her. She, she does feed him, but actually he's sent there to feed her. That's the point. She, she's not there to feed him. He's there to feed her. He made his proclamations and he disappeared. He has plenty. And suddenly the water dries up and he has to go back to the community, and then he has to take care of this person. So the, the chapter 17, I call the education of a prophet. And that's a very important point because when the Talmud takes Elio and moves in all different directions, we have to understand that already in the biblical text, he's being moved in different directions. We'll come back to this later on. I want to make one other point about, uh, uh, two, uh, one, let me make one other point for now. I'll make other points later. But well, that's chapter 17. And then last time, just to review, we also looked at chapter 19. And in chapter 19, we touched upon what is a central, I think the central point about Elio in the Bible and in the rabbinic reconstruction. And that is that in chapter 19, Elio wants to die because he feels that his, um, he feels that he's failed. He had this great event in chapter 18 at Mount Carmel, and the people all cried out, Hashem is God, Hashem is God. But in chapter 19, he's a wanted person. Jezebel's still in charge. She did, she's determined to kill him, just as he has caused the death of the false prophets. So he runs off into the desert, and he says he wants to die. But God does not let him die in the desert. Instead, God brings him to Mount Sinai. After walking 40 days and 40 nights without food, God brings him to Mount Sinai. 
So obviously, the point of chapter 19, which is one of the great chapters of the Bible, the point of chapter 19 is that we have a, a uh, reenactment, as it were, of someone else who was 40 days and 40 nights at, at Sinai. That's, of course, Moshe. So what's very important for any student of Eliyot to understand is that in the, in, the, in the Tanakh itself, the Tanakh is making an obvious connection between Eliyot on one hand and Moshe on the other, and actually contrasting Moshe's response to a breaking of the covenant with Eliyot's response. Moshe's response at Sinai, when Israel broke the covenant with the golden calf, was to pray for the people, was to try to reconcile God with the people. Yes, there was a civil war, 3,000 were killed, but the, the, the Jewish people survived that event and Moshe helps them reconnect to God and, and, and acts as a mediator to, mediator to have God reconnect to the people. The important point over here, and we keep us in mind all the time, is that already in the story of Eliyahu, he is a Moses character. And what's interesting in this regard, and this is propelling the things we'll see in the, in the Talmud as well, which are many, we won't touch up on all of them, obviously. But I mentioned there's another text in which Elio is mentioned. And this text is the last chapter of the, the last chapter of a little book called Malachi, which in the Hebrew, which in our tradition, Amasora has only three chapters. The Christians have four chapters for some reason, we have three. The very end of Malachi, which is the last prophetic writing, very end of the last prophetic writing, when it put that up on the screen, in Malachi chapter three. So I'll read you the last few verses of Malachi chapter three, and then we'll jump into our first uh, Talmudic text. Um, let's see, Malachi chapter three, here it is. Um, chapter three, verse number 22. These are the last verses of the prophetic writings. Chapter three, verse 22, all the way towards the end. And verse 22 reads the following. Zichru, there's right in the bottom there. Zichru, Zichru Torah Moshe Abdi. Remember, says the prophet, the Torah of Moshe, my servant. Asher tziviti oto Yisrael hukimu mishpatim. I commanded him in, in, in Chorei, which is Sinai, laws, statutes and laws, right? Laws and rules for all of Israel. Don't forget the Torah of Moshe. Verse number 22. What does verse number 23 say? Behold, I send Elijah the prophet to you before the coming of the awesome, fearful day of the Lord. So what's interesting is Elio is the one who's going to inaugurate the Messiah, the Messianic age. But notice that the pasuk about Elio Hanavi, which appears at the very end of the book of Malachi, follows the pasuk which says, Zichru Torah Moshe Avdi, as if to say that Elio is coming, okay, and to inaugurate this new, uh, this new uh, era, Messianic era, but what he will be bringing with him, presumably, is the previous verse. He's going to come, and he once again is going to uh, teach us, or recall for us, or reinstitute for us Torah Moshe Abdi. So here already you have, in a completely different book, a totally different book. When you read these two verses in light of what it says in Sefer Mulachim, makes perfect sense that you see already within the later book of the Bible, already they understand that Elio Hanavi is a kind of Moses figure. Sichru Torah Moshe Avdi, and of course, Hineo Nochi Shalechem et Elio Hanavi. It's interesting, by the way, just to digress, and now we'll begin with the uh, first rabbinic text, but it's interesting that at the Seder, so there's a tradition that Elio comes to the Seder. That tradition, I don't know how old it is, actually. I don't think it's as old as people think. There is a tradition to open the door. But in the tradition of opening the door, there's no mention early on of Elio Hanavi. That's attested much later. But in any event, for several hundreds of years, there's this tradition that Elio Hanavi is visiting us at the Seder. And what strikes me as very interesting is that one person who's 
who's conspicuously absent from the Seder, so we, we barely mention his name at all, maybe one time, if at all, is of course the person we expect to mention at the Seder over and over again, namely Moshe. You would expect at the Seder, Yitziat Mitzrayim, that was Moses' task to take the Jews out of Egypt. Moshe means the one who draws out. That's what his name is. You would expect at the Seder multiple references to Moshe. There are virtually no references to Moshe whatsoever at the Seder. So I've wondered always for many years now whether this idea of the cup of Eliyahu is a kind of stand-in for Moshe. We don't mention Moshe directly, perhaps because it would detract from the fact that God is the one who took us out of Egypt, but from sort of indirectly, obliquely, we are referencing Moshe through Moshe's, you know, through Moshe's kind of, if not twin, but one who shares an identity with Moshe, namely Elio Hanavi, once again, who, who augur, inaugurate, inaugurate the future redemption, the final Pesach, as it were, but also who will bring in Torah Moshe Avdi. And that's perhaps one of the reasons that Elio figures so prominently, uh, at least in the last several hundred years at the Seder. Okay, so let's we stop here for a moment just to review what we have. Very brief introduction that could go on with a lot more, but the point I want to make here is that within the biblical texts themselves, there's already a shift in Eliyahu from someone who simply pronounces judgments, a zealot for God, let's call him a zealot for God. That's one way to, that's the original, when you first encounter Eliyahu, who asked this guy? to talk about drought and, and suffering and, and death. Who asked him? There's no, God didn't tell him to do it. If God did tell him, it's not in the text. But he feels compelled to do so. And then as we read that first story, and even as we read the second story that I mentioned, chapter 19, in each of these two stories, there's an attempt to change Elio's thinking. In the first instance, the woman informs of what it means to be a true prophet. And in the second instance, God informs him what it means to be a leader in a time of national crisis, not to give up on the people or say it's hopeless, we can't do anything about it, which is what he's saying, he wants to die, there's no, there's no point. And then takes, God takes Eliel to the Sinai and reminds what Moshe did at Sinai when faced with the golden calf, which was certainly a crisis of enormous proportion. And Moses did not say, forget it. God says, I'll make you the nation, forget them. No, says Moshe, you can't do that. These are your people. So these are the two lessons that Eliel is being taught in the biblical text. Okay, and now our task here in these three weeks is to get some sense of how the Talmudim imagine Eliel. And I want to re reiterate, as opposed to the folk legends of Eliel, because they're two different things. Folk legends are one thing, which are very interesting. But the, our focus will be on selected uh, stories from the, from the Talmud. There are many stories in the Talmud. So I'll begin with one in Masechet Ketuvot, which is on 105b in Tractate Ketuvot. So we have that on the screen, Ketuvot 105b. Towards the bottom of the page, it starts with the words Rav Anan. Rav Anan, Aiti Weahu Gavra, Hanto de Gildani. Could you repeat? Could you repeat that? Yes, Gavra Kanto de Gildani. It's about ten lines from the bottom on one hundred five B. I'll read and translate it. Oh, we have a translation right here. Let's see. Keep, keep going. It's one hundred five B towards the bottom of the page. That, yeah, you have it right there. There you got it right there. There it is. There it is. You got it. What did you, did you had it anyway? Where is it? You keep going, you passed it, I think, no? Keep passing, no, you passed it, go back. Go down. One second. Go back again. You had it before, and you then you moved it for some reason. Go back to 105B, towards the bottom of the page. 
about 10 lines from the bottom of the page. Give me a moment. I'm not working with a standard Vilmanashas. I think it was like 16 or 17 you were at. Could you repeat the line again? Rav Anan starts with Rav Anan. Rav Anan. Said to his benefactor in English. Certain, a certain man brought Rav Anan a basket of fish. That's how it starts. Okay. Found it. Okay. Found it. Got it? Fine, put it up. That's it. Right, exactly. Right in the middle of the page. Ravanan, I'll translate it. I can't write. Ravanan, Kanto to Gildani, the Begili. So a certain man, Ravanan is an early uh, Amora, about third century Amora, and a great scholar, and he was a judge. So a certain man brought him a basket of fish. On my way, Ravanan said to him, Maya Viditir. What is your business? Why are you here? Amalei, he said to him, Dino Italy. I have a lawsuit. I came for it. I have a trial. It's going to be in your court. Ravanan refused to accept the gift. Amalei, he said, I'm disqualified from rendering judgment for you because you brought me a gift and a judge is not allowed to take, take gifts from any, either of the parties. I'm not going to accept the gift, but the fact that you offered me a gift disqualifies me from rendering judgment. The larger context of the sugi here, by the way, this is one story. There are several such stories, many stories about judges that were offered some kind of gift. And the Gemara is very, they didn't accept it, but they also would, did not permit themselves to, to be a judge. Even when the gift is not an actual gift, it looks like a gift. No, since you did me a favor of some sort, that disqualifies me from judging. This is the whole long sugya. This is one of the stories. So the guy says to him, the guy says, on my way, the man, the man said to Rabbi Anan, Dina that's fine. I don't want you to judge me. That, that's, I have no problem. However, I want you to accept my gift. Because giving you a gift, he says, it's not about judging. I don't want you to be the judge, but I want you to accept the gift because it's like a person that brings first fruits to the temple. It's not actually first fruits, but giving it to the great scholar, the gift to the great scholar, I says, is, I see as a kind of gift to God. So please accept my, my, my offering. The uh, Tanya. And how do I know that bringing gifts to a great person is like giving, is like bringing Bikurim? And they quote a story from the book of Murachim not about Eliyahu, but about his pupil, Elisha. Eliyahu has a pupil. So it tells us that a man came from Baalshalisha, a place. He brought to Elisha bread of Bikurim, 20 loaves. Was Elisha one who ate Bikurim? Says Rashi, he wasn't a priest. The priest eat Bikurim. Uh, fine. El Romalacha, it must teach you, someone gives a gift to a great Torah scholar, it's regarded as if he's offering Bikurim. Fine. That's what he says to him. I, I don't want to, I didn't come to, so you can't judge me, that's fine. But please take my gift anyway. Omale, Ravanan said to his, uh, to this fellow, I don't, I, I did not want to accept the gift, but now that you gave me your reason, I will accept it. Okay, I'll accept your gift. Initially, I thought it was about judging. I accept the gift. Fine. So he can't judge, but the fellow did come for a, for a judgment. So having disqualified himself from judging, 
he sends he sends this fellow to Rav Nachman, right? Rav Nachman was a, a great judge at the same time as Rav Anan. Uh, and he sent him, maybe in a letter, may, 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 may master judge this man. Because I, Anan, I am disqualified from, from judging him. He didn't say why he's disqualified. So I, I can't judge this guy. Would you please judge him instead of me? That's what Rav Anan said. Omar, so Rav Nachman, when he gets this, 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 this letter, Omar, Rav Nachman says, if he sent me this kind of a note, obviously this man must be a relative of Rav Anan, and a relative's not allowed to judge a relative. He presumes, incorrectly, that the reason Rav Anan can't judge is because he's related. Fine. So he said, Right? Um, he says, At the time this man walked into the court, the fellow who had given Ravanan the gift, Rav, Rav Nachman was about to judge a case involving an orphan. Omar, so Rav Nachman said, now on the top, Rav Nachman said, Hayasei. Hayasei. says judging this lawsuit is a, is a commandment. The Hayasei and judging the other lawsuit also is a commandment. In other words, in one case, he's assuming that the relative of Ramanan must be a great scholar also. On the other hand, you have an orphan. Which case should I judge first? We say, we have to, I, I did. which case should I judge first? So he says, well, each one is a commandment. You know what? I say to covet her Torah Adib. It's better to honor the Torah. So let me judge, the, let's, let, I'll tell the orphan to wait, and I'll judge Rav, Rav, this fellow's case first, the one that Rav Anand sent him. Uh, so Slika, so he set aside the judgment of the, of the orphan. Kevin de Chaza Baldine Yakra de Ka when the person on the other side of the lawsuit against this fellow saw the honor that Rav Nachman was giving him, Istatim Tanote. His arguments were blocked. I guess, in other words, psychologically, he felt that it's a hopeless case. The other, obviously, the judge favors the other guy, who must be a very important person, and he he couldn't he didn't present a very strong case. He presented a weaker case because he felt uh, he felt frightened by it, or he felt that there's not a chance to win. Right, that's the story. So this is within the context. The Gemara has several such stories that it judges is forbidden to take a bribe. Now, in this case. He didn't take the bribe. He refused to take the bribe. He takes it at the end because he's not a bribe. And then he sends him off to Rav Nachman. Fine. Now we have the following story. Ravanan Habiragu Eliyahu Hanavi Gabe. So the Gemara says, and you have this in several places in the Talmud. Ravanan Eliyahu Hanavi would, jet, would, would, would regularly come to Ravanan. He would, why would Eliyahu Hanavi come to Ravanan? He was, his, he was one of his chavrusas, because they would learn together. So Eliyahu would come to Rav Anan to learn Torah. On a regular basis, he would show up. Fine. Uh, it's very important. He would teach Rav Anan something called Seder Eliyahu. Here we have in the Talmud, Seder Eliyahu. It sounds like there's some kind of set of teachings or a book called, so he would teach him actually. He would come, they would come together, they'd sit and learn, and Eliyahu would teach him Seder Eliyahu. We'll come back to this. This is very important. The order of Elijah. Haven the Avad Hachi, when Ravanan did this, when he sent the lawsuit over to Rav Nachman, is Stalik. Eliyahu stopped coming. He's not coming anymore. He's not going to teach this guy anything. Ravanan's a big guy. No, he's not teaching Yotiv Bitanita Uboy Rachbi. Ravanan observed the fast and pleaded for mercy. Piata. So Yo came back. Piata, but when he came back, he terrified Ravanan. Ravanan was frightened when he came back. Piovet Tevuta. 
Ravanan made a chest. And he sat inside the chest. When Yo would come, he wouldn't sit in front of him. He would go into a chest, close up the chest, and sit inside the chest. Until Eliyo taught him the entire order. And that is why people say, Seder Eliyo Rabba, the Seder Eliyo Zuta. There are two orders of Eliyo's teaching, the great order and the small order, Eliyo Rabba and Eliyo Zuta. So let me, this is the end of the story. The story has actually made different pieces to it, but I just wanted to uh, reflect, we can all reflect upon the story. It's a, quite a famous story. Um, the Gemara speaks of something called Seder Eliyahu Rabbah and Seder Eliyahu Zuta, as if the Gemara is aware of something, there's some kind of Seder Eliyahu, some kind of set of teachings of Eliyahu, the great teachings of Eliyahu and Eliyahu Zuta. Now we do actually have, just parenthetically, we do have such a, a, a work of Eliyahu Rabbah and Eliyahu Zuta. Uh, it was probably composed around the 10th century, actually. And it's a very interesting work the great order and the small order, and many people have spent a lot of time working on it, etc. It's quite interesting, but leaving that aside, what is, what is the takeaway from the story over here? Let's start with this. What is the takeaway of the story? Our, our topic is Eliyahu Hanavi. So what, is, what, do you, what do you see about Eliyahu Hanavi over here? What is this about? Um, Obviously, he's very, he's very disturbed by the story. He doesn't blame Rav Nachman, by the way. He doesn't seem to have a... His main anger seems to be directed against this Rav Anan. What did Rav Anan do wrong? So I, I was, I'll, make, I'll make one suggestion over here, and then I'm happy to hear other suggestions. These stories are very open-ended. There's a lot to be said about them. But it strikes me that the larger context of the story is what, what, the, what, the, what the Gemara calls and the Torah calls Shochad. The, the Torah says in the book of Devarim, Lotikach Shochad, a judge should not take a bribe. That's what it says. Why not? Ki ha-shochad the Shochad will blind the eyes of those who can see and, and make false the words of the, of, of the righteous. So this plain meaning is you're sitting as a judge and some guy walks up, hey, here's, a, here's some money to judge the case. And obviously, when you take the money, on some level, consciously or unconsciously, you might feel indebted and take the side of the one who gave you the money, uh, even if it's actually unconscious, but somehow it's going to affect you. But the question is, what are the parameters of Shokai? So the Gemara the, the, has a whole bunch of cases. In this particular case, is what is the Shokai? Because Ravana not only didn't take, didn't initially refuses it, he actually doesn't judge either. He doesn't judge. He says, I can't judge your case. I'll take, I'll take what you gave me, but I, I can't judge your case. But then he sends him off to Rav Nachman. And he says, please try this guy's case. I can't judge him. Now, he didn't say why he can't judge him. So Rav Nachman assumes that it's probably a relative or something. And then he also assumes that a relative of this great scholar, maybe also a scholar, or maybe he feels he's honoring Rav Anan who sent him. And covered her Torah takes precedence over the over this over the over the over the orphan. And when Eliyahu sees this, understands this, sees everything, he refuses to meet with to teach Ravanan Torah anymore. He's not going to teach him any Torah. So the point I think is, I mean, our question is, let me let me step back one second. As as a general proposition, let me, let me make let me state the general proposition. My working assumption in general, is that when you have Midrashim, whether in the Talmud, outside the Talmud, especially in the Talmud, or, 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 or the Midrash, Midrash Rabbah, my assumption 
which may seem obvious to all of you, but believe me, in the world of the university, it's far from obvious, is that the Midrashim are presuming something about the text. They're not simply constructing something whole cloth. They're constructing something out of a previous tradition or set of traditions. Now, what is it about? What is this idea of shochad? So Eliyahu Hanavi, apparently, when it comes to taking shochad, is some kind of fanatic. Eliyahu believes that when you, shochad doesn't mean just taking a, some money and putting it in your pocket. Shochad means being in a position where you can be influenced by anything other than divine uh, thought or divine law. Which is why, and this is what they're picking up with Eliyahu. Eliyahu Hanavi, I would say, is, is a kind of otherworldly figure, even before he ascends to heaven. He's somebody who doesn't reside in the court of the king. Eliyahu Hanavi of the Bible resides on top of mountains, resides in a cave, resides on the other side of the Jordan. He's not somebody who is a people person in any manner, shape, or form. In fact, he's a, he's a, he's a hairy man. And a hairy person, right? Asaph is a hairy person. He's an Isadet. He's not a civilized person. He's a complete, ultimate outsider. He's like Moshe Rabbeinu to, to, to the 10th power. Moshe is also an outsider. But Eliel is even more so. And we know nothing about Eliel's family. Does he have a wife? Does he have children? There's nothing about Eliel that's personal. So Eliel believes, apparently, or his behavior suggests, that any interaction with, with the powers that be, by definition, is a kind of shokhan. Because you can't, because you can't, because you can't speak the truth, because you're under the influence of all kinds of forces. The only way to speak the truth is to absent yourself from, 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 from society. That's his thinking. And this Ravanan is guilty over here. First of all, because he does accept the gift at the end of the day, but more importantly, because he didn't make it very clear when he sends off to Rav Nachman with this letter, he's suggesting in one manner, one manner or other, that he has an interest in helping this fellow. And therefore, the Gemara says, Rav Nachman can't judge fairly. That's number one. And then number two, and then I'll stop at this point and hear what you have to say about this, the other point is that the Gemara makes the point that apart from the, there are two problems with the case. One is that the adversary in the case feels, feels uh, psychologically that he, he can't speak up because he feels that he doesn't have a chance. The other season's favoring the other guy. But the other point is prior to that, that Rav Nachman had a different case he was going to try, the case of the orphan. And Rav Nachman delays the orphan's case to judge this guy's case first. And here you have another pet project of the, of, the, of the Talmud when it comes to Eliyahu Hanavi and in the folklore. Eliyahu Hanavi is extremely kind when it comes to poor scholars and when it comes to orphans. When it comes to downtrodden people, that's what Eliyahu Hanavi is all about in, 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 in the Talmud. The people that are down and out, as it were, the people that society has left behind or shunted aside, those are the people he cares about. So in this particular story, there are, there, there, there are two problems here. One is that the orphan got pushed aside. That doesn't work for Eliyahu. And the second is that Rav Hanan is guilty of taking a bribe. You may not call it a bribe, but he calls it a bribe. And the point is this idea, I heard someone speak recently that Eliyahu in rabbinic thinking is this kindly old man. That may be true in, Jewish folklore. But it certainly ain't true in the Talmud Babu in Yerushalmi. He's not a kindly old man. Not at all. He does kindness to many people. He's, in a certain sense, the same fanatic he is in the Bible. He's just fanatical about other things. He's fanatical about making, making sure that, that, that truth wins out and that people on the outs are, are fully protected. So that's the, I think this is an interesting story. That's number one. And I'll just say before I hear your comments about this, that there's something else also very interesting about the story, apart from the fact that we discover such a thing exists as Eliyahu Rabba and Eliyahu Zuta, which is, this is the source actually. But apart from that, I wanted to revisit later 
what's this idea of Ravanan going to the box? He sits inside a box, inside a teva. What is that about? I just put it on the table to think about. I'll stop at this point for a moment and take comments or questions about anything till this point. And if you and if you're an attendee who hasn't accepted a panelist invitation, if you use the raise hand function, I'm happy to help you ask a question. Is there anything in the chat? And it's been quiet in chat on both platforms. Quiet in the chat, quiet in everywhere. Okay. <laughs> I would have a hundred questions here. I don't know about you. Okay, fine. Anyway, uh wait, I have a question. Well, yeah, just up. a suggestion. Yes. The, sitting in, the sitting in the box, which is strange, but it does, it is reminiscent of Moshe being put into that little crack of the rock, you know, before the divine presence passes over him. Right. So you connected to Moshe <laughs> sitting in the cleft of the rock, which, by the way, with Elio, he also sits in the, in the rock, because in chapter 19, when God brings him to Sinai, he's inside a cave. So there's a parallel, a very specific parallel to Elio in the cleft of the rock. Um, so what you, you're suggesting there's another Moshe connection over here. Anybody else have a suggestion about that? I have a question. Yes. How does a story like this uh, evolve? Because it's not, it's not in the um, Tanakh. It's not in the Nevim. How does this come into the Talmud? The Talmud is, is not, there are thousands of stories in the Talmud that are not in Tanakh. It, the Talmud sees it as part of what we, I guess we call it Torah Shabbal Peh. The Talmud is not just reinterpreting Eliyahu Hanavi. The Talmud is reinterpreting the, the Chumash in general. The Talmud constructs out of, out of a minimal number of verses in the Torah, um, an entire system of law. Not only does it construct an entire system of law, sometimes it seems to be at variance with the plain meaning of the text, but in order to construct an entire system of law, it proposes that we can find within the words or the letters of the Torah, not only a full system of law, but a full system of law, which both warns you not to do something and tells you what the punishment is if you, uh, if you do it. So I see this, these stories about Elio Hanavi as being of one piece with the general uh, understanding of the rabbinic tradition that is within the human power to, un, to, to, re, to, to, to extend the words of God and, to, and often to, to, to interpret them. And sometimes it would appear to reinterpret them. So this is just part of a much bigger project, which is, which is the rabbinic project, which is the project of you know, in, a kind of uh, interpretive tradition that the idea being that the Torah, the basic ideas of the Torah are eternal, but the application of them or the understanding of them may change from time to time. And that's, you know, that's a, a big question. What happens to laws that basically seem to run counter to our best moral selves? What do you do with them? And those uh, and other such questions, which is a very important question. But as I said, this is, you know, the Talmud, these are stories that are not, I think, based in history of any sort, obviously. They are rabbinic constructions, but their construction is trying to make a point, as are the stories of the Torah. They are stories which are trying to teach us something. Most of the Torah is not law. 80% or more is, are stories, but the stories with, a, with moral teachings, presumably. That's what, the, that's what it's about. Um, in terms of your point about M Moshe, about connected to Moshe, I also thought it's connected to Moshe, but I thought it's connected to something else about Moshe. The story I thought is connected to is when Moshe comes down the mountain the second time, when he goes up to get the Torah the second time, and the Torah says that Moshe came down the mountain the second time, the people did not realize, Moshe did not realize that his face was shining, Quran or Panav, and everybody was afraid to go near him. So what he does is he puts on a mask, he covers up his face, and it strikes me that this is somewhat similar to that as well, the idea of not being able to stand before Elio as he's teaching. So in this case, instead of Elio putting on a mask, he, uh, he, he climbs inside a box, basically. But it's the same idea. It's the distance between the, distance between the teacher whose Torah is pure and the great, the great teacher of Torah, Rav Anan, 
but at least from Eliyahu's standpoint, it's not pure. Because if you, uh, if you are connected to any sort of power, remember that Rav Nachman, remember Rav Nachman, by the way, is not just a great teacher. He's also an important political figure, part of the Reish Galuta. So he's, for Eliyahu, that's all, that's all an anathema. Unlike other prophets, unlike Elisha, his disciple, who, who was in the court of the king, who deals with kings all the time, Eliyahu Hanavi is not that way. Eliyahu Hanavi is the ultimate, complete, and total outsider. He comes from outside the land, he ascends someplace or other, no family, and he doesn't dwell. And he's, as I said, he's an Isayar who has, you know, he has a, you know, a, a hairy mantle, it means he's, 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 uncivilized human being. And the claim he would make is that to the extent that you deal with other people and within a certain tradition uh, and you are influenced by or part of a larger community, your Torah will never be pure because there are all kinds of uh, influences on you or pressures put upon you and you can't really get to the truth. Now, Eliyahu Anavi is extreme, obviously, but the basic point that I just said and attributed to Eliyahu is at its core, in my way of thinking, 1,000% true. Of course it's true. We're, we're, we're all vested in something and therefore our judgments are not well, necessarily what we truly believe to be right. We have all kinds of other calculations. What's so-and-so going to think? How would it affect this one? How would it affect my job, my family, my Rebbe, my grandparents, my tradition, my imagined tradition? The list goes on and on. Uh, so that's for sure true. And that's one of the themes that we have spoken about in the beginning of Shavuot with Chana. Chana is a person who is ultimately the bottom of the barrel altogether. And therefore she sees clearly, she sees what's right and wrong. Of course, she has no reason not to because She's basically the outsider to begin with, the ultimate outsider. Anyway, that's the story. This is the good way to start the stories of Eliyahu Hanavi. That's one point. So Eliyahu Hanavi has a particular position and it's extreme. He is in even here an extreme. And I'll later on, either this week or next week, get to a, a I think a better sense, a definitional sense of what Eliyahu Hanavi is about, according to several Talmudic, according to race, straightforward Talmudic reading, because it's not just Eliyahu Hanavi. Eliyahu Hanavi for the Talmud is part of a bigger group of people. He, he, in one might say he's one of the best representatives of a different group of people that we'll get to next week. But I just wanted to start, let me, let me get back to another, um, another one other text over here. Can I say can one I point? Just, uh, can yes. I just mention something? Yes, oh. yes, please, Steve. Uh, I just want to mention that is Eliyahu to a certain extent a, uh, a foil or the absolute opposite of the Nachash? Uh, he, is, he is the representative of the purity of, of the connection to God in Gan Eden. And in real life, we can't function that way. Um, a, so that it's an ideal and a harbinger of whatever but and the truth of the matter is uh we need the masecha or the box to be continuously taught by uh eliyahu uh who's in the czar he's constantly te teaching people he teaches people in the, in the talmud bavli too all the time he has many chavrusas there we are in the, in the bavli um and we'll get back to that point your point is i think very well taken actually i think that the idea of elio inaugurating in a different kind of world is because he may be, as you say, a foil, or he may be even, there are certain people who, who they can't themselves be the leaders because one may make, make the same claim about, about Moshe Rabbeinu. And Moshe is not quite as extreme as Elio, but it's very similar to Elio, and Elio is based on Moshe, he's the outsider. Let's not forget, Moshe doesn't enter the land. That is to say, when you set up your society, Moshe is not the one at the head. Moshe is giving us certain principles which we try to implement within the world in which we live. But the world in which we live is not the world in which Moshe lives. Moshe is with God. Moshe is not with the people. Going to the measure, he separates from his wife. He separates. He's a teacher. But fundamentally, 
as the Talmud puts it, Moshe stands with God. So, um, yeah, I think the point is very well taken. I think that Eliyahu is an extreme, necessary, perhaps, but an important teacher who puts out a different point of view. And I'll come back to your point next time, because I think that fits in very well with what I want to suggest about Eliyahu Hanavi and the Babi in general. Because I don't think he's, he, he is unique, but he's not, he, but he's not the only one. There are a group of such people in the Bible that have great value, but they're not, they're not living in the world we live. And we always not living in our world. He lives in his own world. Um, is it actually two o'clock now? Can't it is. This can't be, is it two? Yes. So that's, so it's that's two, and I have two people who have had questions. Okay, take, let's take questions. So I, I'm sorry about that. I thought we had much more time. Okay, we'll continue next time. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, more questions. Okay, um, I have a question in the chat, and then I see Debbie, you've been waiting. So in that order. Um, first, from in chat from Elena, it seems that by putting himself in a box, he's agreeing to do things Eliyahu's way. He's separating himself from the world to focus on Eliyahu's teaching in Eliyahu's way. Elena, did I get that right? I don't think he's accepting Eliyahu's way. I think he's he's recognizing, I would say the opposite. He's recognizing that he's, he's, he is, he's accepting Eliyahu's critique, I think. I think he accepts the critique, but Ravanan is a standard Amora and teacher who has his pupils, who has his community, et cetera. Eliyahu is someone who has no community. Eliyahu has no he doesn't have a community. He's, he's, he's the ultimate, complete and total outsider in every way. Um, and he just, you know, appropriately, he sort of doesn't even, he's, does, he's not even in this earth, even after he dies, he's up someplace in heaven, he comes back to visit. <coughs> so I wouldn't put it that way, but yes, I think that, look, Elio has what to teach him, that's the point. <laughs> and you learn from many people in this world, some of whom you respect enormously, and some of them you respect enormously in a certain area of life and you don't in other areas of life. And I, that's one of the questions that Talmud raises. We may have learned from Elisha Ben Avulia, depending on what stories you read, some of them paint them in a very dark way, but he felt you can learn from all kinds of people. And the trick is to learn from somebody to take the good and to throw away the other stuff and not to be drawn into all the other stuff. That's a whole longer conversation. Who else had something to say here? Debbie, Debbie? Um, Go ahead. yeah, um, I was thinking that uh, the, between Eliyahu and Ravanat, that Eliyahu embodies an extreme, and therefore he could not, he would look down on Ravanan, who is grappling with realities and is always going to fall short in Eliyahu's estimation. Anybody who deals with reality, um, that's what Hashem was trying to teach Eliyahu the whole time, that the pure uh, way that you're looking at things is not how it is down here on earth. And that's when he says, you know, you're out of a job. He could Ooh. never, he, what Anan, you know, there's always relativism and I can't take this the the gift from you and then still be impartial. Eliyahu is always minutak from the people. He would never have that problem. Firstly, nobody would want to give him a gift because he's so um, fire, <coughs> so fiery. He doesn't connect to the people. So Ravanan has that problem. Um, and I think every judge uh, wrestles with that. It's always very hard to be impartial like that because we all have connections, but Eliyahu doesn't. That's, That's what right. he finds himself the, on. My, my point is not to suggest that we should be Eliyahu Hanavi. That's not my point. My point is that the Bavli, I think, what I think is interesting over here, you know, I heard someone recently talk about the Talmud transformed him in so-and-so into a kindly old man. He's not a kindly old man in the Talmud Bavli at all. Actually, that's just a mis mis misreading of the Bavli. Could be in the folklore. But my point is, he's, he, the Talmud tries to be honest to who Elio actually is. 
And yes, he's taught certain lessons within the biblical text itself. That's how I began. But at the end of the day, there is a fanaticism to Elio. And the point is that there's a, he speaks a certain kind of truth. And that's the truth we have to hear. Now, how we apply that truth in the real world is another story. But it's but at a certain level, he actually speaks the truth. And I think that's what the Babli is after over here. There is something to be said for what he's thinking. You, you, you know, you, the truth is if you you sent this letter to Rav Nachman in a way that caused a, a miscarriage from his standpoint, the miscarriage of justice, a mistreatment of the orphan. And for that, Eliyahu Anavi, from his way he sees it, you're not the kind of guy I'm going to teach anymore. Why should I teach you my Torah when you, when you, when, when, when you, when you pervert it? So he prays, he prays, he prays, and he's able to bring him back. But there's still the distance between, I don't think it's so much a critique of Rav. I mean, I think there is a critique of Rav Anan here. I think that's true. But I mean, it's talking on a very high level. The, the, Rav Anan said, I can't accept this gift. I can't judge you anymore. I'm not going to take your gift either. Oh, it's just a gift for the scholar. Okay, I'll take it. And that, I think, is a problem for Elio. No, don't take the gift either, because since he initially intended to give it to you, maybe as a bribe, whatever his terrence is afterwards, that, 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 that money is tainted from Elio's standpoint. Right. And I might argue otherwise. But I mean, but that, that, my point is that, not that Elio is, we can live all as Elio, but that there's a truth to Elio's teaching, Emet. You know, we say Moshe Emet for Torah Torah Emet, where we always called in the in the some of these he wrote, Ishai Met. There's a certain truth to Elio. But we'll deal with it next week. The next week we'll look at two other Gemaras. We'll start with the Gemara next week. Very interesting Gemaras. Uh, the Gemaras are fascinating, actually. And we'll again we'll see the same thing about Elio as a Moshe figure. And just to say coming attractions, Elio as one who is a teacher of Torah, but I think Elio has a different Torah, actually. The Torah of Elio and the Torah of Moshe are not the same, as we'll see next week. Or the Torah of the rabbis in Elio are certainly not the same. There's a very famous story that we'll get to next week, which is a lot of, we'll talk, our story is brief. Hopefully there'll be a discussion around this story. So thank you all very much. Looking forward to next week. Uh, continuing Elio Hanavi. Thanks a lot. All right. Thank you, thank you, Rabbi. Thank, thank you, Rabbi Salman, for today's class. Our next class at Drisha is also with Rabbi Silver on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time with the seventh session of Jacob and his children. You can find out about this and other Grisha class offerings online at, at grisha.org slash classes. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.